0: This is the third in a six-part series by Terry Virgo on the Book of Philippians. The talks were first given to a gathering of senior international leaders from the New Frontiers family. Terry has based them on Paul's apostolic relationship with the Church in Philippi. The accompanying notes provide an outline to the series and also provide a number of quotations from helpful commentators. So here's Paul's... Uh, appeal now to the people. There's a turning point, as we said, from his life, his experience in prison, which we talked about yesterday, to his coming, his parousia, the same word, the coming of Paul uh, to Philippi. He's going to get there, and he wants uh, now to focus on their situation. And if you like, this is a part of the purpose of his writing this letter in the first place. He's heard that there are some contentions in the church. He's somewhat anxious, We'll see also his writing to express appreciation to them for their gift to him. Those were probably the two main reasons for his writing. And so he starts, first of all, in verse 27, which is uh, this kind of turning point verse. And uh, Gordon Fee says the whole, that's the whole of this long verse, is a single, nearly impossible sentence in Greek, which probably assumes this form because Paul is trying to include all the urgencies of the letter in the opening word. This paragraph thus holds the keys to much in the letter. And then Fee gives us his own rather clumsy translation, trying to uh, really be uh, tight in on the Greek. So the first word emphasized is only. This one thing, if you like, only. In the light of what I've just said about my coming, <laughs> but in the meantime, before I get there, let this be what I hear you to be about, namely, living out your citizenship, the heavenly one, of course, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I'm sure we're all glad that Gordon Fee didn't translate the Bible for us. <laughs> but he's, <laughs> he's trying to get us right into the stuff of the verse. And so Mattia also says the force of the word only, which is the first word in the text, only conduct yourselves, as it is in the NASB, the force of the word only is tremendous. Nothing else must distract or excuse them from this great objective. It must be their all-embracing occupation. Bart says this, only lifted like a finger, a warning finger. And you'll find in Galatians, Paul uses that word several times, only. I just want to direct your attention to this. Um, it's in Galatians 5.13, but also in Galatians 1.23, 2.10, and 3.2. When he's, he's saying, look, this is the focal point. Earlier on, you know, he says, I want you to choose what is excellent. I want you to distinguish what is the main point. Now he's giving an illustration, if you like, only this is the main point. This is the significant thing. I want you to bear in mind. And what is this thing he wants to uh, bring to them? And just as it were in brackets, and we won't have time to develop it, I'm afraid, uh, there is this point that he says, uh, whether I'm there or not, and Matthias says, an apostolic church is not necessarily a church in which an apostle Apostolic person is resident, but it must be cast in the apostolic mold. So he says, whether I'm there or not, I don't want you just on good behavior when I come. It isn't that the church changes. Oh, the apostle is visiting. I want you to be like this whether I'm present or not. And uh, so we haven't time to develop all that, but it's thrown into this rather long sentence. And we come now to the the point, conduct yourselves is the word used uh, in our translations But it doesn't really pick up the full weight. Paul, when usually is talking about living, when he says live worthy, uh, often he uses the word walk, peripatio, which is the Hebrew way of expressing. So he says, walk worthy. And when we did Ephesians last year, we emphasized that. The NIV tends to translate it live. The NASB stays true to the kind of Hebrew thought that you walk through life. You walk worthy. You live out your life. But on this context, he doesn't use the word walk. And he's using a word that is rooted in their citizenship. It should be literally or could be literally translated, exercise your citizenship worthily of the gospel of Christ. Yeah, the only other time in the New Testament that the actual Greek word, which is <laughs> um the only other time it's used is in Acts 23.1 where Paul, looking at the council, said, Brothers, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God to this day. That's when he's on trial. And in the margin of the NESB, it says, I have conducted myself as a citizen. They translate it, lived my life. But the word that's used carries something of what we referred to at the beginning, that Philippi is like uh, a colony of Rome. It's this particular uh, out, outplacing of Rome, if you like, in Macedonia. It's been conferred with this high privilege that they are, as it were, Roman uh, citizens. And the idea in the Greek mind is that a polis, or this word from which we get our our thought, political, the polis, the people, the city, they are, it's not just a place to live, It was a rather grand, a grand concept to be part of this polis, this people. A sort of partnership, and it aimed for the highest good of all its citizens. And so to live as a citizen in this uh, context meant rights and privileges, but it also meant duties and responsibilities. And so as Gordon Fee says here, as Philippi was a colony of Rome in Macedonia... So the church was a colony of heaven at Philippi. So uh, as the Amplified Translation has it, only be sure as citizens to conduct yourselves. Trying to pick up the actual Greek word. Paul is obviously doing a, a words play. But this, uh, this people that were an out uh, a posting out from Rome, as it were, now they are citizens of the kingdom. Mattia puts it well. Philippi was a Roman colony. A title seen as the one one of the coveted prizes of the Roman Empire. Colonial status meant that the people of Philippi were reckoned as Roman citizens. Their names were on the rolls at Rome. Their legal position and privileges were those of Rome itself. They were a homeland in miniature. But all this is also true of them spiritually as men and women in Christ. Grace has made them citizens of a heavenly city. In their far-off land, They are the heavenly homeland in miniature. Heaven's laws are their laws and their privileges, its privileges. so he's using that kind of play on the political situation and saying, no, this is true of you as Christians. You are a colony of heaven. You're an outpost of heaven. Now, of course, for the Jewish person, also that concept of the city goes right back into the Psalms. And there you get Psalm 48, uh, the city of the great king. And uh, that wonderful city which filled their hearts. I'll never forget at the uh, Festival of Light, actually, when a song which was extraordinarily popular, though often we didn't know what we were singing about, uh, was talking about the city of the great king on the sides of the north. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, the mountain of his holiness. And it was one of those songs that came, I believe, at the time that God was revealing to us the privileges of being part of the city of God. And I know for myself, when I first heard David Mansell preach on the church as a city set on a hill that cannot be hit, it ignited something in my heart that has never gone from me, the wonder of the city of God. And of course, back in uh, the Old Testament, it was literally a place called Jerusalem that David took. But the psalmists lift it to another place. The city of our God. His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth. This is another kind of manifestation. This is where God lives. It's an outpost of heaven. And Jerusalem has that about it. And uh, you'll find that the city of God is spoken of with such excitement in the Psalms. Let Mount Zion be glad. Walk around Zion. Go around her. Consider her towers. And then the psalmists. And the prophets begin to expand that concept of a literal Jerusalem. And if I can read Hawthorne, you won't have this quote, but I'll just read it to you. Originally, Jerusalem was the ideal city, localized and restricted in scope. But under the influence of the psalmist and prophet, the concept city was expanded until Jerusalem was not only home for every member of the commonwealth of Israel, but a spiritual fellowship in which the nations of the world eventually would enter. A universal center of worship of Israel's God, the God of the whole earth. And so you find this idea, which was in the Roman and Greek concept, goes back into the Jewish thinking, if you like. And we often say that wonderful old psalm, Psalm 87, where it says, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. I shall mention Rahab, Babylon, among those who know me. Philistia, Tyre, Ethiopia, this one was born there. But of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. The Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will count when when he registers the peoples, this one was born there. And they shall sing, as well as those who play on the flutes. All my springs of joy are in you. So we have this spiritual concept that we've been born in this city. We belong to this city. And so the city of God thrills our hearts. And uh, we know that in the book of Revelation, ultimately, it says the bride will come down out of heaven like a city, uh, like a bride. The city of God, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven like a bride prepared. And so this concept of a of city dwelling goes right back into the Hebrew framework of thinking. But it was also expressed just politically and human level uh, in this Roman culture, uh, originally uh, within the the Greek culture. And so Philippi was such a place politically. And Paul is using the play on language. We will come to it again later in chapter 3 about living your life worthy of being an outpost of heaven just as the Philippians were meant to live, worthy of their roots back into Rome. So just the word live is not really <laughs> doesn't come off clear from the text or conduct yourselves. It's got all that root behind it. So he says, I want you to make sure you're living worthy of your high privileges of being the holy ones of God in Philippi. You're associated with the great king and his great city. Hallelujah. And so how are they to do that? They are to do it. It says it's in, in, with, with a view to the gospel success, worthy of the gospel. And he gives them uh, three things which we've listed here in the, in the notes. Standing firm in one spirit. First of all, standing firm is a phrase we often use uh, in the New Testament, often used. It means unflinching courage, and it's uh, used often as soldiers who refuse to leave their post they just standing in the midst of conflict, rather like David's mighty men, standing and holding ground. And uh, you'll find it's referred to again in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, uh, Galatians 5, 1, when Paul says, stand fast in your liberty. Don't let anybody throw you back into legalism. Stand there. And Philippians 4, 1, it's the same phrase again. Stand firm. Part of our Christian walk. You stand. You don't yield ground. And, uh, and then stand firm in one spirit, And uh, we're not talking about one spirit with a small s, but we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Mattia and Gordon Fee make the same uh, comment, really. When Paul speaks of their unity in the Spirit, he is directing attention to the blessings bestowed upon them by the Spirit, who has incorporated them into the church, regenerated them into new life, and indwells them in the fullness of divine power. It's the Holy Spirit who makes us stand as one. And Gordon fees quite strong on it as you would expect with his emphasis. What is altogether missing in the apostle Paul is any hint that spirit might be an anthropological metaphor for community disposition. Paul himself uses this very language in one spirit in Ephesians 2:18, 1 Corinthians 12:13 to describe the holy spirit precisely in passages where the emphasis is on the believer's common experience of one spirit as the basis for unity. So we're not just talking about a general nice feeling of being one. We're talking about the supernatural giving of the Holy Spirit. And if you like, the example of Peter standing with the eleven, standing together. I love that phrase. On the day of Pentecost, Peter standing with the eleven, all freshly baptized with the Holy Spirit. Or uh, inebriated with the Spirit, united, where they used to be, can I sit on your right hand, can I sit on your left? The coming of the Spirit had formed them into a company. It was the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just a kind of pleasant agreement. It was the Holy Spirit's presence. And so I believe that's a good emphasis uh, to underline there. Standing firm in one Spirit. Then he goes on with one mind, feasts as one person for the faith of the gospel, Matea, in a single, it's a, it's a single description of that complex of heart, mind, and will. We, the word is used is psyche, the, the, the soul, which is our experience of ourselves on the inside, as it were. We, we are one in that. And then contending together. Striving is the NA, NASB. S- is The Greek word is a- athleo, from which we, of course, get athletics and so on to engage in an athletic t- context, striving together, standing together, striving together for the gospel. I think the imagery of a rugby scrum comes to mind. You know, locked together, standing firm, and, and it's not just standing ground, it's athletically striving, it's pushing forward, and the strength of a rugby team is uh, found often in that context, their ability to hold together. And uh, we'll come later to the detail of Judia and Syntyche who are having problems with one another and he says "Formerly they used to strive together with me we were together in this and uh, that characterized his fellowship with her with them in the past and so when he's saying to them now only there's one thing I'm asking of you I'm asking you live out your citizenship worthy this is the way you do it you're one in the spirit fight for that contend for that and contending against the hostility that is being brought to bear against you. Verse 28, without being frightened. It's the only time in the New Testament uh, that it's used, and it's uh, in other contexts shown to refer to an uncontrollable stampede of startled horses. Uh, They're being opposed, uh, but they're not to be startled. And uh, uh, Paul actually so emphasizes it, he uses a double negative. You could translate it, not being startled by nothing. <laughs> uh, not by nothing. And uh, it's, a, it's a double uh, negative, which you can do in Greek, but you can't do in English. So it's, it's nothing's to scare you. Because, well, why? Well, to die is gain anyway. And that's the, that's the thinking that's behind this. Don't let anything scare you. Fee says, such people cannot be intimidated by anyone or anything, since they belong to the future with a kind of certainty that people whose lives are basically controlled by, uh, by fate can never understand. Indeed, such a disposition will serve as an omen with regard to the opponents of their destruction. Paul says in this verse, doesn't he, says, if you stand like that, it will be a warning to those who are in opposition to you. And I can only suppose that at such times as when people were laying down their lives in the arenas and they showed such extraordinary courage that it must have been an amazing sight to see people uh, being destroyed, but with boldness, with joy, with worship, with praise. And uh, Paul says it's like a warning to them of their destruction. uh, It wakes them up to the reality. They must have thought, what is it with these people? They can die like that, but they're unflinching. And so Paul says it's got that kickback, if you like. You're not alarmed. It's a sign of, the destru- of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that is also from God. And so that's really the urgency that Paul is bringing to this appeal for their unity. And he says, yes, we will suffer, but we're called to suffering. It's part of the call. And uh, it's not suffering in general, but suffering... For his sake, those particular sufferings that are the result of our following Jesus and being identified with him. And Paul says, experiencing the same conflict you saw in me. They saw it in him when he was thrown into prison and beaten in Philippi, and which you now hear to be in me. I'm still in prison in Rome. <laughs> He's a prison dweller. And uh, they witnessed that in his life. Now he goes on, having... Given this early exhortation, this appeal, now come on, stand together in one spirit, be like that. And then he says, now, I want to urge you, I'm going to appeal to you to work this out. And he's going to guide them into it, and he's going to give them the example of Christ. Therefore, he says, I want you to live the worthy life. And uh, uh, he underlines it by, and I'm going to rush through this, I'm sorry, but you will have noticed there's nine pages, and I'm very conscious of rushing here, but I want to try and get through it, because the next section is important as well. But uh, he is saying, if there's any comfort in Christ, any consolation of love, any sharing or participation in the Spirit, and you can see a similarity there with the grace in 2 Corinthians 13, uh, the the fellowship, uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus and so on, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. There's a very similar uh, Uh, expression there indeed the spirit is the empowering agent of all that god is currently doing in them he appeals to them to complete his joy and again just to bring out what i tried to mention at the very beginning is that this is paul writing to a church that he works with a church in fellowship with an apostle in keeping with the tenor of the whole letter he interjects this strong personal appeal His own life and apostleship are deeply bound up with his converts' well-being, and especially with their perseverance. So he says, complete my joy. Again, it's touching a bit on what we looked at perhaps yesterday, that Paul is unafraid to introduce the personal. He just, just doesn't say it's only for the glory of God, which it most certainly is. It's not only for the advance of the gospel, which it most certainly is. But he's also saying, please make me happy. And again, it's that personal touch that perhaps has been so foreign to modern evangelicalism because we leave people just personal and individual. You know, you walk worthy of God, and that's your life. You work it out, and uh, we just remain objective, just hand over the truth to them. But Paul wasn't like that. He's saying, you know, if you go down the pan, I'm in trouble. If you do well, I rejoice. We're in this together. And that's one of the missing ingredients of modern evangelicalism with all its intensely individual application. And uh, we need to break that. And maybe we've got to, as we were perhaps seeing yesterday, step out of our nervousness about uh, our personal relationships and seeing no, that's part of God's gift to the body. He really has put us in family. And I want you to do well for my joy, Paul says. Now I think for us, we say, well, what's he got to do with you, Paul? We're talking about the kingdom of God here. But he's not afraid to put that personal note in there, for my joy, make my joy complete. And so we need to, uh, I believe, rediscover the atmosphere of the New Testament church. And I'll, I'll just fl- uh, skip over theirs, be like-minded, the same love, uh, together in one soul. And then we come to the verse three: Do nothing from selfishness or vain conceit. Now, selfish ambition hinders God's purposes. And Jesus invites us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. It's in losing our lives that we find them. And I guess that that's the revelation that the early apostles needed. I, I, I did a teaching at home recently, we been going through Mark's Gospel, and I called it Two Touches Make Complete Sight or something. Because one story uh, about the person who is partially healed when Jesus prays once is, I see trees or men like trees walking. And then he touched them again. He's completely healed. And the next passage says, Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Christ. And uh, he suddenly realized this is the long-promised Messiah. And then Jesus says, and I shall die on the cross. And Peter says, hey, no, no, you won't do that. And it struck me, he's only partially seeing. He sees men like trees. He sees messiahs like our kind of king. We're going to impose the rule of God on the nations out from Israel. And then Jesus says, now listen, unless you fall in the ground, you've got to take up your cross and die. There's some, you need some further healing. <laughs> the way I'm going to heal the nations is I'm going to get them freed from selfishness. Unless you lose your life, you'll never find it. But if you will lose it, You find it. I thought Samir's illustration last night was marvelous of when someone said, you know, we can do this for you. And he saw the danger. You know, Christian lives are built on decisions like that. And you never know what day you're going to hit a decision like that. And there are people we haven't met because they made a decision secretly in a boardroom that we don't know about, but they made the wrong decision. The reason we met Samir is because he made the right decision. And he lost his life. But what a wonderful testimony. I found it. Here I am in Germany. Wasn't that fabulous? And, and found is calling. But that life turns on decisions like that. All the time. See, not just meetings we prepare for. But days when you don't know someone's going to say, I've got this for you. And it's, what, what do I put as foremost in my heart? What's the big deal? And Jesus said, you've got to lose your life to find it. And, and having our own ambitions. We can carry that into the kingdom. You see, so he's now willing to work in difficulties in the Hindi situation. He's still letting Jesus make the choices. And it's such an important thing for us that we are losing our lives. Wrong ambitions are desperately dangerous in God's work. Now, some of us have been in church situations where you're hitting people with ambition and their own, what about me, and how about, where do I fit? And you say, oh, God, will you please get the lumps out of this mix so we can build something for you. And we said, God, help us to get through. And Jesus said, if you will lose your life, you can find it. And so Paul is saying the same thing here. This is a uniquely Christian virtue. You must humble yourselves. You take this word, humility. And I'm sure we've heard this before, that uh, selfish ambition stands at the heart of human fallenness. Paul understands that if these attitudes are allowed to continue unchecked, the believing community in Philippi is headed For serious trouble and we say God help us help us to model it like Jesus modeled it like Paul modeled it like we'll see tomorrow as Timothy models it that it's out of us so that we're not looking for our own place and our own honor and uh, we know that humility is a uniquely Christian virtue the Greeks put no prize on it they thought it was very ugly they thought humility wasn't wasn't warrior-like It wasn't manly, they despised humility. And so they regarded loneliness and humility to be shameful things. And the Christian ethic came as a revolution in terms of seeing that as a real virtue. And so Gordon Fee says humility is thus to be, not to be confused with false modesty, that kind of abject civility that only repulses, wherein the humble one by obsequiousness gains more self-serving attention than he or she could do otherwise. Rather, it's to do with a proper estimation of ourselves. The stance of the creature before the creator, utterly dependent and trusting. False humility is a very yucky, horrible thing. And the Uriah Heap stuff stinks, and we don't need it. But it's a genuine humility in the face of this awesome God. Who do we think we are? We're talking about God here. And so it's the real thing we're after. And so... Paul is saying, now, take this line, walking with humility, not regarding others. NIV has better than. It's probably not a good way of translating it. But that you should see as others, their interests being of more import than your own. Rather, be preoccupied with their interests than with yours. And that's a constant challenge to every one of us. And God help us uh, to to have that attitude. And uh, again... The phrase here is one another, not regarding others as better than yourself in a general way, like every person you ever meet, but the actual context is one another, regarding one another. And we often say, don't we, that there are these 40 plus one another verses in the Bible, which is talking about the community, the church. You know, love one another, build up one another, you're members of one another, don't devour one another. It's talking about the, the church, this this city of God. And so he's saying here regarding one another within the community. Uh, it's, it's working out our one-anotherness. And so Paul is actually here using his favorite one-another, a word that emphasizes the community relationships because we're members of one another. And so Fee says to translate this others, as in the NIV, is to make too general and thus to tone down the community significance of the exhortation. He's saying, in the church there, in the group there, regard one another as having more, uh, your, their concerns is more important than your own. So it's an emphasis of the church again. And then he moves on to this uh, passage, which is so famous. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And uh, he then breaks into what is one of the most magnificent passages in the New Testament regarding Christ. And uh, many would feel it's uh, an early Christian hymn, whether Paul himself wrote it or not. uh, There's argument and debate. But in the Greek context, it doesn't show up so clearly in English translation, the way it is set out and the rhythm and the style suggests that it has an identity of its own. And it may have been one of those psalms and hymns and spiritual songs they were to sing to one another as they grew in their life together in God that's referred to in Ephesians 5 and in Colossians speaking to one another in psalms and hymns they got to know their truth often in that kind of context often an illiterate people learning as they sang out their songs uh, not necessarily uh, able to read everything and so often this is regarded as a song or a hymn and you'll find most commentators seem to uh, embrace that Perspective. Wherever it came from, it is obviously here now with all the weight of the clout of Scripture. It is uh, to be regarded as inspired, like the rest of the package. And uh, it's about Jesus in all his fullness. Now, you know, people have written books and books and books on this passage and taken it out of the context. We don't have time uh, really to, to bring that sort of approach. But at the same time, it is so wonderful. But I don't want to gloss over it. So I've prayed a lot about this morning and feel very rushed, really. But it's so important that we do feel the weight. See, Paul is saying, yeah, keep me happy. But he's then going to bring this massive argument of the style of Jesus right into a local church with its problems. And uh, he goes straight on afterwards uh, with his arguments. So be together. Work it out. But the, the model of Christ is our model. He is the one who's taught us how to live. And the grandest teachings, I feel the same about Ephesians 5, when he's talking about husbands and wives. He brings in such magnificent teaching about Christ and the church to teach husbands and wives how to relate. And so the most sublime realities touch our ordinary lives. And it isn't that you put sublime realities behind glass or in a big library and leave it to the academics while we wrestle with the stuff of life. You bring down the sublime realities into our marriage, into our church life, and live in the light of Christ. Otherwise, we've missed the point. We are a people identified with Christ, and his style has to overwhelm us and affect us. And so, God helping us, we're just going to work through this wonderful passage here. Uh, So, the example of Christ. As God, he emptied himself. It begins with one who is in the form of God, that is one who possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God Himself. But didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Lightfoot says a prize which must not slip from his grasp. Or Vincent, something to be held on to at all costs. Jesus did not regard the glory that was his as something to not be threatened, not to risk, to clutch whatever happens, I'm not losing this. No, no, he didn't regard it in that kind of a way, a prize that mustn't slip. No, okay, let it slip, if you like. Jesus uh, taking that position. He, verse 7, emptied himself. Now, of course, this is where you get into massive tomes of books. What does it mean? He emptied himself, and uh, you remember some of you at uh, the Brighton Center when dear old John Arnott (laughs) said from the platform uh, Jesus left behind his deity and came down and somebody said to me I thought he was going to be sucked off the stage by all the fast inward breathing from a <sighs> you know, he left his deity What? John Arnold went blissfully on uh, but it it is a hard and difficult passage for us to penetrate the mysteries and Motia I think very helpfully under this context of he emptied himself, says this. We ought to notice that in asking the perfectly natural question of what did Christ empty himself, we are in fact departing from the direct line of thought in the passage. For the verb emptied is at once followed by an explanatory clause taking the form of a servant. Our eye, in other words, is removed from the realm of mystery the relation between the new incarnate life and the eternal divine life, and focused on the realm of historical factuality, the reality of the eternal God becoming truly man. It is not of what did he empty himself, but into what did he empty himself. Now, he's saying that's what the text says. He he emptied himself, taking the form, into what? Did he empty himself? And he apparently has Augustine to back him up. He emptied himself, not by losing what he was, but by taking to him what he was not. And uh, so, you know, it's massive, and we could spend the whole week on this passage, but I we press on. (laughs) Taking the form of a servant. And the obvious parallel with Isaiah chapter 53, the servant of the Lord, is uh, here. It's reminiscent of Isaiah 53, where we're told the servant poured out his soul, emptied himself, if you like, poured out his soul to death. And Matthias says, the fundamental thought is that of a deliberate, conscious consigning of oneself to a foreseen situation. The servant of the Lord brought himself voluntarily and totally into death. That's the Isaiah figure in Isaiah 53. Jesus in order to die, first brought his total being down to the condition of the Lord's servant. The purpose of the change was obedient service. He took the form of a slave. The sphere of the service was humanity. He was born in the likeness of man. So we see here the Lord Jesus emptying himself, taking on the form of a servant and fulfilling the figure that's so beautifully described in Isaiah 53 and the other servant songs, Behold My Servant. Do you remember we're told that Philip went and joined himself to the Ethiopian who was reading Isaiah 53, and uh, Philip said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, "I I don't know. Who is he speaking of himself and so on? And it says, And Philip, starting from that scripture, preached Christ. And so the fulfillment of this humble servant who laid down his life is obviously our Lord Jesus. But uh, N.T. Wright says the real humiliation of the incarnation on the cross is that one who was himself God and who never during the whole process stopped being God could embrace such a vocation that this is God who is dying on the cross. This is God who is experiencing Uh, this suffering on our behalf. And uh, Peter Lewis says, man is indeed what he was, but not all that he was. He was truly man, but not merely man. And so he emptied himself, and then as man, he humbled himself. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Christ possessed the immortality which belongs to God alone. He subjected his immortality to death. Nothing was held back. Everything was given up. He humbled himself. This feature, so central to Philippians 2, 6 to 8, must find its root in Isaiah 53, where for the first time in the Old Testament, we meet with a consenting sacrifice. I'll just read this next Mattia quote. Whenever a sinner brought his animal to the altar and laid his hand on the beast's head, the lesson was plain. This stands in my place. This bears my sin. Yet the substitution was incomplete for the central citadel of sin, the will, was left unrepresented in the uncomprehending, unconsenting animal. Isaiah foresaw that only a perfect man could be the perfect substitute, and that at the heart of this perfection lay a will, delighting to do the will of God. And so he's saying that in the heart of the cross is something profoundly unique. And uh, you find it's quoted in Hebrews A body thou hast prepared for me, in sacrifices and offerings you've taken no delight, a body you have prepared for me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. And so the heart of the cross is a willingness. That, and so all the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, unconsenting, uh, uncomprehending, having hands laid on them, scapegoat, dying, but for Jesus. No, this, at the heart of the cross is this willingness uh, that, that God delights in. And so there we see the perfect giving of the Son of God. Then, uh, just to go on, because it says, even death on a cross. And just to pick that phrase up, uh, it's hard for us to see the cross as New Testament believers saw it. You know, we've, we, we come to Christianity centuries later with its uh, uh, bejeweled crosses on altars and crosses on ladies' uh, necklaces and crosses on the top of churches. And uh, we see the cross as such a beautiful symbol, but it's so far removed from the cross as they understood it in their day. I was just reading about um, uh, the beheading of Charles I and uh, how he was executed. And it was a very dramatic thing in English history. You can't quite imagine some people the next day wearing an axe round their neck uh, to commemorate it. We're talking about people who put a cross. You know, we wear a cross. I felt, what is the nearest to this? I thought, perhaps, perhaps the guillotine, Madame Guillotine. um, In the French Revolution, there were these guillotines, and people were dying. And, of course, in Roman history, many slaves died. And the cross was an ugly, ugly, horrendous symbol. And you can't imagine people wearing a guillotine on a little chain around their neck. But for us, we, we come, our first awareness of the cross Is these centuries later where we glory in the cross. We love the cross. But it's hard for us to put our mental perceptions back to where it was for them. When they thought of a cross in that generation, it was a place of such shame. There's no way that uh, we can get into that simply. So I've tried to uh, just pick this up a bit and say um, uh, about the public guillotine, although, of course, the guillotine, it's all over in a moment, as opposed to the cross, which is uh, prolonged horrendous agony. And Gordon Feast is here. Here is the very heart of Pauline theology, both of his understanding of God as such and his understanding of what God has done and is doing in our fallen world. Here is where the one who, as equal with God, has most fully revealed the truth about God, that God is love and that his love expresses itself in self-sacrifice cruel humiliating death on a cross for the sake of those he loves the divine weakness death at the hands of his creatures his enemies is the divine scandal the cross was reserved for slaves and insurrectionists no one in philippi we must remind ourselves used the cross as a symbol for their faith there were no gold crosses embossed on bibles or worn as pendants around the neck or lighted up on the steeple of a local church. The cross was God's, and thus their, scandal. God's contradiction to human wisdom and power. That the one they worshipped as Lord of all, including Caesar, had been crucified as a state criminal at the hands of one of Caesar's proconsuls. That the Almighty should appear in human dress, and that he should do so in this way, as a Messiah who died by crucifixion and then peter lewis says in polite roman society the word cross was an obscenity not to be uttered in conversation it is understandable therefore that the style of the hymn becomes abrupt at this point the additional phrase even death on a cross being inserted like an exclamation mark to signal the emphasis or astonishment it took christ as far beneath his original incarnation as the incarnation was beneath his heavenly glory. In his coming, he made himself a beggar. In his dying, he made himself a curse. In the one, he descended to earth. In the other, he descended to hell. He's been given a name which is above every name. And that's a a difficult text sometimes. People say, well, what is the name that's referred to here? Is it the name Jesus? Is it the name Lord? And I've just put down the two ways in which that's sometimes looked at, that at the name of Jesus. Is the name Jesus? Fee says, if so, then Paul doesn't mean that he has now been given that name, but that in highly exalting him, God has bestowed on the name of Jesus a significance that excels all other names. Moreover, Jesus is in fact a name, whereas Lord could be regarded as a title. Secondly, another way of seeing it, the name Lord as equivalent of Yahweh. And uh, you'll see the context goes on then to quote from the Old Testament about every knee bowing, which was exclusively only to be given to Yahweh, the Lord. And so he goes on to say, this emphasis on Yahweh, the Lord, as the one unto whom all shall give obeisance, seems to satisfy that what Paul has in mind is none other than the name Yahweh itself in its Greek form Lord which has now been given to Jesus. And so now we're saying yes he has this name above every name is the one that uh, has been given to Jesus. Uh, I was just looking at Edie's commentary and he says this you haven't got it in your notes the name referred to is Jesus. The title, Lord, with which every tongue is to greet him, characterizes that universal precedence with which he is now entrusted. So Jesus is Lord becomes the statement of the New Testament Christian. And so this name Jesus, this human name, yes, is a name above every name, but Jesus is Lord becomes the statement of the believer. Jesus is God, He is Yahweh. He is Lord, with all the the authority that was given to that name uniquely in the Old Testament. The one name that before we which we shall bow, and the uh, Paul says, uh, Fee says the significance of Paul's using the language of Isaiah in this way lies with his substituting at the name of Jesus uh, for the to me of Isaiah 45:23, which refers to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Uh, And so that, he says, in the Old Testament, it says, to me, every knee shall bow. Now, in the New Testament, it says, now to Jesus, every knee shall bow. I was very stirred this morning when Sam read from the Psalms that shout that came from these prophetic psalmists. It's magnificent. When When this, you know, you think of Israel, this little nation, no bigger than Wales. And imagine a nation like Wales saying, all the nations will bow to our God. And that's effectively what they did. They said, all the nations, and Sam, as ever, captured the atmosphere of these crazy psalmists that said, all the nations are going to come to our God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they will bow the knee. And Isaiah 45 is saying, yes, every knee, every nation will bow the knee to Yahweh, our God whether it's Assyria or Egypt or the far-off nations, they're going to come to our God. They're all going to bow the knee to our God. And they celebrate it. They were so happy about it. Now, in this passage, we see how God does that. That he sends forth his son, the servant. Gradually, the Old Testament focuses not on this nation of Israel that gets so backslidden, but God needs a model, a model Israelite, a perfect Israelite. One who fulfills absolutely what Israel should have fulfilled. The servant of the Lord. This mysterious figure appears in Isaiah, uh, first of all, back in 40, and through those four psalms, or four songs, uh, culminating in 53, where he is the one who suffers. And now... Jesus is given the name above every name, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess, he is Lord. That's how this shout of the psalmist, all the nations will come, is going to be fulfilled through Jesus. All the nations are fulfilling this promise as they acknowledge Jesus is Lord. The psalmist has his hopes fulfilled. So now we have an international gospel one that goes to every tribe and tongue and people. And this Jesus, who tasted death for everyone, is the one who's going to have every knee bow to him, every tongue confess. The hopes and longings of these early psalmists are fulfilled now through the Christian gospel, through the coming of Jesus and his message going out. And so uh, in the second part of this fee quote, Paul now asserts that through Christ's resurrection and at his ascension, God has transferred this right to obeisance to the Son. He is the Lord, to whom every knee shall eventually bow. Hallelujah. And every tongue will finally acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord. And uh, that, I'll just read it quickly. One can scarcely gainsay the Christological implications of this confession in the present passage. On the one hand, in the Jewish synagogue, the appellation Lord had long before been substituted for God's name Yahweh the early believers had now transferred that name Lord to the risen Jesus thus Paul says in raising Jesus from the dead God has exalted him to the highest place and bestowed on him the name of God so God's ultimate person and glory is revealed in Christ not as one grasping for equality with God but pouring himself out in sacrificial love taking the lowest place and finding full expression of that love in his crucifixion, now being exalted by God to indescribable glory and honor. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, God, help me. I'll just go on quickly to the application. Sorry, it's such a rush today, but it's nine pages, and it's the only way we can break this passage up, okay? So we'll just go on to over the page. Do you want to, st- I mustn't leave it like this because the whole point of the argument is therefore. And I hope that these notes can be useful to you in the future when you can look at it at more le- leisure. And uh, so, so Paul then goes on to say, at the top of page 8-9, uh, be careful of just seeing this great passage alone, I'm trying to emphasize to you. It's rich in theology, but Paul puts it as a basis for argument. And so he's saying, therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Now Lloyd-Jones says this, this is perhaps one of the most perfect summaries of the Christian life to be found anywhere. Work out your salvation, this is your responsibility, with fear and trembling. Why? For God is at work in you. And so you get those two sides, and you could preach a whole text, a whole sermon on that text. Matthias is similar. God is effectually and ceaselessly at work in you, both to will and to work, to recreate our wills and to impart to us his own capacity for effectual working. If I may take the liberty again of using Samir's excellent illustration last night, God was at work in him, making that choice saying, no, I won't, I won't do that, I'll do this. But there had to be a willingness on his part in, in fear and trembling, saying, oh, I, I choose God. And yet it's God who's giving him the right desires. And the Christian life isn't just us resting back, you know, and saying, well, you do it, God. I've got to make some choices, but I'm finding a God within me who gives me preferences and highlights preferences that don't make sense to the natural man. God is at work in me. God's giving me these desires. God's giving me these preferences, but He's looking for willingness, a holy fear and reverence. And it's on such points that lives turn, as I said earlier. But God is at work in us now. Gordon Fee, who's got this strong emphasis of the church, which I so love and admire, objects to this individualistic uh, application that associated with uh, with uh, Lloyd Jones and Mattia here, and says that. evangelical Protestants tend to individualize Paul's corporate imperatives and argues Paul's concern lies elsewhere, namely in the believing community in Philippi. He argues that what follows the imperative in verses 14 and 16 makes that certain. and I think he's got a very good argument. Now, the two do overlap, actually. But let me just read what Fee says. In Pauline theology, people are saved one by one, to be sure. Which is the point of discontinuity with election in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God saved a nation. Right? They were a people. But in the New Testament, they're saved one by one. But in continuity with the Old Testament, they are saved so as to become a people for God's name. The concern in this passage is with there being his people in Philippi as verse 15 makes certain that you may become blameless, pure, God's children, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. Thus, everything about the sentence and its context indicates that Paul, with this imperative, is not referring to the salvation of individual believers, but the salvation that God has wrought in making them a people of God for his name in Philippi. And that at issue is their getting on with it Even though, as before, verse 4 and 5, they will have to respond individually. The imperative itself has to do with what takes place in their community life. Now, actually, I love that. And that should echo where we're coming from. And it's so in um, contrast, if you like, to the Dr. Lloyd-Jones stance, if I can personify this a bit in him, personalize it. You know, he comes from that background where dear old Dr. Lloyd-Jones used to appear on the pulpit, preach breathtaking stuff in you know, like philippians and disappear down the back and you never met him he didn't even shake your hand at the door and it, he didn't have a big vision of the community when uh, rt kendall and louise kendall first went there louise told me i greeted people two rows in front of me so i walked down the aisle went across and said welcome i think you're new aren't you afterwards she was told off for t- talking to people inside the church right so the background the background she told me that the background of the great teaching of dr lloyd jones is the individual you hear what i'm saying it's the individual he's saying work out your salvation and that's where these men were coming from people like lloyd jones it's you and god work out your salvation with fear and trembling now that's still appropriate it's not like it's not appropriate anymore. But what, Paul, what Fee is arguing is this God's actual desire is a community that are living out their salvation, that it's worked out corporately. And Fee often challenges, challenges us with this that we individualize all these corporate instructions. I brought it out at Stoneleigh two years ago be filled with the Spirit, which we always take personally, tend to. And Fee says it's all in plural. He's saying, be a spirit-filled community. Be filled with the spirit. That's the church, not just the individual. And so you work it out, singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so here he's saying, now listen, this is the problem at Philippi. They've got problems with one another. You're out of step. It may be personified particularly in these two ladies. But they have got problems with one another. Now he's saying, listen, work out your salvation, your corporate salvation, with fear and trembling. It's not just my individual one. Now, obviously, it comes back to me as the individual because I've got a problem with somebody. I remember years ago when we were at Seaford in the early days, there was a, a couple that joined the church, and the lady was a difficult lady. Wendy found it extremely difficult. And I remember Wendy, I've heard her testify to this publicly, so I'm happy to do that. <laughs> she, said, she said to God, she's got to leave this church, or I have, or was to that effect. And God dealt with her and really, really dealt with her strongly in her own heart and came to the place where she said, I love this woman. Now, you see, that's working out your salvation. It works in the individual, but this application was corporate for the good of that church. And so we work out our salvation, but the, the, the emphasis is corporate. That's the desire. And that's why we are church people, amen? We want to work it out corporately. We want to make it happen. And so we said, God... Yeah, I work it out in my own life, but the application, the actual desire is for a Christ-like community. So that when people come in, they say, what is it about these people? How these people love one another. They're corporately working out their salvation. And uh, it's so important. I'm so grateful for the way we've shaped, and much of that's down to Simon's uh, perceptions. I think the way we've shaped this conference, the meetings, the sharing, the cells, etc. We're we're trying to get more and more friendship, fellowship, corporateness, internationally, etc. And so we work out our salvation. I'm nearly finished. I won't go on over much here. But I just want us to not miss the point. And the te- the temptation is to subdivide the section and just look at the hymn about Jesus and failed to see the whole point of it was its application into the life of the church. And so let me just finish with this again, uh, uh, quoting Gordon Fee. He says, we are able to work, well, just before the quote, we are able to work it out because God himself is at work, and that's that word energon, from which we get energy. God is at work in and among us. It doesn't mean that God is doing it for us but that god supplies the necessary empowering both to will and to do and this is a very important section here christian ethics lies not just in the willing but also in the doing is implied in romans 7:18 in his description of life before and outside of christ but looked at from the perspective of a life in the spirit that's how you're to understand the end of romans 7 in a sentence very important hugely, hugely important. People like John Piper, who we love and respect, will not teach you that. They will teach you that you are, in Romans 7, grappling with sin in the enemy, yes. And sadly, we were out of step with one of our dearest, dearest friends on this one and the movement that he leads. They are grappling with sin. That's where their focal point is, and they're in Romans 7. Now, Paul says, and this is such helpful teaching. Gordon Fee says... Christian ethics lies not just in the willing, but also in the doing. He's at work in you to will and to do. i read on. In Romans seven eighteen in his description of life before and outside of Christ, but looked at from the perspective of life in the Spirit, Paul describes the pre-Christian life with these same verbs. To will, he said, was present with me. He recognized the good and spiritual thing that the Lord truly is. But without the Spirit, he goes on, carrying out the good doesn't happen. As a believer, however, hallelujah, Paul will have none of that, i.e., of their not being able to carry out the good that they will. Hence, he urges the Philippians to work it out precisely because God, by his Spirit is implied, is present with them both to will and to do. See, that's magnificent. That is the answer to that Romans 7 wrong teaching. The Romans 7 teaching says, The will is with me, but how to perform I know not. When I was talking to a guy just two or three weeks ago, he says, That's where we are. I said, No, 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 that's not where I am. We can't have it. Paul says in Romans 7, I'm a slave. In Corinthians, he says, "All All things are legal, but I will not be mastered by anything. That is the statement of a free man. He says, all things are legal, but I won't be mastered. Romans 7 says, who will deliver me from this slavery? If that's supposed to be a Christian testimony, and John Stott would say the same. See, John Stott, some of these great teachers, they say it's a human-Christian dilemma. Even Packer leans that way. They would say, the holier you get, the greater this battle becomes. Now, um, it was Lloyd Jones that set me free. His teaching on Romans 7, and his is magnificent on it. And he says it's too strong. He says, if it said, I sometimes have a bad day, <laughs> then we can all agree with Paul. Yeah, we all have a bad day. But he says, Paul doesn't say, Sometimes I have a bad day. Paul says, I am sold in slavery to sin. The thing I want to do, I cannot do. The things I, uh, I, I don't want to do, I do. There's no good in me. He says, it's too strong. If it was less strong, we might identify it. He says, it's too strong. Therefore, the explanation cannot be that is the normal Christian life. Says it's very important, dear friends, when great people really teach not helpfully on this. But we must, and fear, I think, is so helpful on this passage. God is at will in me, both to will and to Do. It's not just that I wish I could, I can. And then again, in the other passage, which I mentioned to my friends in America, I said, listen, what about where Paul says, all things are loyal, all things are legal, but I will not be mastered. That is a free man talking. I'll not be mastered. Very much in contrast to Romans 7, I'm in slavery, who will deliver me? So it's very, very important. So that's where I do think, actually, where Lloyd-Jones says it is the classic statement of the Christian's life. God is at work with. in my willing and my doing. God is at work in me to will and to do. And I love Gordon Fee on this stuff when he says, Paul will have none of that. Amen. He will have none of that. And so we need to press on with that, both to will and to do. Uh, the Christian character, the outshining light, I must stop do all things without grumbling and complaining an echo of the israelites that's like 1 corinthians 10 reminding us of the israelites going through the wilderness and uh blameless and innocent children without fault in the midst of a crooked generation among whom you shine as lights i love Matthias' little quote here light is a beautiful illustration of something that does what it has to do by being what it ought to be isn't that fabulous God wants us then to shine as lights. We'll, we'll close here. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Glory. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, we thank you. You really have come to set us free. We thank you for the price you paid. We thank you for your exalted position. We thank you we know who is the Lord. God, we just ask you, continue with us as we celebrate your victory in our lives. Corporately, help us to love one another. Help us not to do selfish things, fight for our own corner, but to esteem others as more important. Help us in it, Lord Jesus. Bless this day as we continue together. Amen. This concludes the third part of this six-part series. For more information on New Frontiers resources, visit the website on www.newfrontiers.xtn.org.